Welcome, everybody, to Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider, author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the Greatest Bloody Matches in Professional Wrestling History, and a writer on the Segunda Caeta blog. I am pleased to be joined by a very old friend of mine, not that he's very old, but we've been friends for a long time, uh, writer, cartoonist, well-known person on the internet, uh, Kathor Johnson. Kathor, how are you, buddy? I'm good. All of those things are true, so we're starting off right. All right, and we are talking about... El Hijo de Santo versus Espanto Jr. Mascara contra Mascara uh, from August 31st, 1986. A very cool match. One of the older, oldest Santo match, El Hijo de Santo matches we have on tape. There's a couple that are older than that, but this is pretty early in his career. And I think, and I'm pretty sure it's the earliest mass versus mass match we have on tape, which I think is kind of his like master the place where he is at his greatest. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting to note that at the time of this match, he's four years into his career and he's already taken nine masks for other people. So he is, he came in with sort of the pedigree, right? He's obviously the son of the most famous, uh, luchador of all time. Um, and sort of, he already has that sort of history in him. So he kind of, was automatically had all these built-in big... He was never going to be a guy who was going to work for four years in, you know, um, Guadalajara or something like that before he got a chance to move into a mid-card feud in Guadalajara and then maybe get a look at Arena Mexico. He was always going to be a guy who was going to have a rocket strapped to him. Yeah, he's in and, and racking him up immediately. And that's one of the things that... One of the reasons I picked this one to talk about and one of the reasons it's so interesting is how do you build a match that's entertain as good as this one is with a for completely foregone conclusion. Right. At no like, point does anyone think a Spanto Jr. is going to take Santos mask four years into his career. I mean, it, it, I don't know if there, Santos ever had a mask match where anybody thought he was going to lose his match, but he, cert- mask, but he certainly wasn't going to lose it here. Right. And it's, it's fascinating because when I t- as any wrestling fan kind of has a point in their life where they find themselves talking about wrestling to people who don't or aren't into it. And something that I use a lot as a lever to talk to people about why wrestling is interesting and beautiful is I talk about to be a truly great professional wrestler, you should be athletic and you should be charismatic and you should be able to tell a story. But one of the most important things to be truly great is that you have to be giving. And that's something that this match has so much of is that the reason it works so well is Hijo Dos Santo is just gives Espanto Jr. this incredible amount of like respect and space and makes him look like a just a just a world eater. It makes him look terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think sort of historically in Lucha Libre, you when you lose your mask. Especially, I think it's true when you lose your hair too, but especially when you lose your mask, that often is like a chance for you to showcase wrestling, what you're about and who you are and your, you know, every bit of the things you can do. I mean, you'll often see guys in mask matches where they'll do three things that you've never seen them do before. Uh, and or after, right? That's the that's the point where they're if they have any crazy thing that they, any crazy dive that they were going to bust out or any lunatic bump they were going to do or anything like that, they're going to do it uh, on, in the match where they lose their mask, right? So it's like a spot that's going to. I think in some ways it, it's designed to be a showcase for the guy who loses almost more than a showcase for the guy who wins, because this is going to be the Santos one. Um, uh, 34 masks in his career and Espanto lost his mask once right like yeah. so, so it's a very different thing yeah for me this was Tuesday you know taking your mask and I think that it's really great because one of the things I love is the first fall of the match I love like I love two out of three falls like structure in Lucha it's so satisfying and it gives them such a more powerful narrative tool set in a lot of ways because it breaks up the action and the first fall of this match Espanto just like completely dominates it Santo doesn't even really like it opens up Hio de Santo doesn't really like engage or approach or lock up with him at all he's very cautious and then you know Espanto dominates the offense and makes him tap very decisively 
Like, it's not arguable at all. It's really one of the things that surprised me so much about it is how much time Hijo Dos Santos spends outside of the ring to, like, regrouping and, like, trying to get his shit together. Yeah, totally. And I think that is kind of a... You see that a lot in, like, big Apuestas matches where frequently the Rudo will just, you know, come in like a like a whirlwind and maybe take the first fall, take most of the second fall. Uh, I know that's kind of my my favorite match of all time is MS1 Sangre Chicana, which is a hair match, and that's got sort of that structure too, where MS1 just dominates the first seven or eight minutes, and, and then finally, you know, uh, Sangre Chicana is able to get one big move and take over. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, it is it is funny to see a big star like Santo just get walloped for so much of this. Right? Yeah, he's tend way to think under. Of, yeah, I mean, I guess you see that, saw that. I mean, Jerry Lawler, you know, the famous Lance Russell line about Jerry Lawler was that he was a slow starter. And, you know, sometimes Hogan, I guess, would get beat up a little bit at the beginning, but usually not this much and usually not this one-sided. Yeah, it's incredibly one-sided. And then what's really interesting is we get the, the fiery babyface comeback in the second act after the mask, the first mask rip which is kind of the the wound, essentially. And I've, you know, you've watched wrestling for as long as we have. We've seen a lot of babyface comebacks. And this one is just, like, it. there's so much vigor in it. Like, it's really, like, a, a big turn. And then what's great about it is after it's over, and what's so cool about the two out of three falls, the structure, is that, you can see Hio Dos Santo like come down from it and like deflate a little bit. Right. Like I got this pin. I was able to do this, but now I, I, you know, I, all I ever, all I really did was even this up and now it starts now. Right. And it's, it's what it's, I really wish that we had better quality this video because the third fall, what's viewable in there is great. And I want to see more of it because it's so amped. Like they're both like, the first fall was very sort of like, oh, shit, you know, this guy got one up over on me. The second fall is like, now I'm motivated. I'm serious. Now, the third fall, they're both just going. Like what you said, they're both going, like, pretty insanely hard. There's so much good shit. Yeah. I That a Sponto bump in the second. I know we're still talking. We're still, we're not, I'm not done with the second fall. Where he just takes the full force of flies out of the ring and just lays directly on both of his knees. Oh God, that's I was going to bring that up. He does like the trip, has does the trip out of the ring, and he just goes. There's no hesitation at all in that. He just goes. I mean, it's like the Fuerza Chris Hamrick bump, except those guys landed on their back, which is crazy enough. But just landing square on both knees on like you know hard uh, adobe clay. I don't. What yes. do we think this? What do you think the floor is made of? Concrete. Sure, yeah, there are so Brick. many bumps in this. Which is like, fuck, come on. And even like really simple stuff. Like even in the first fall, just like the headlock takeovers that Spato is doing, each one of them is like vigorous. It's like everything is really felt in this in a really great way. Like I really. There's just so much to love about this match. It it just feels great and serious and rough. I don't know. It's it, it made me want to see it made me want to see more Espanto Jr. especially, but maybe you know. Yeah, I mean he's a guy we we don't have a a ton of on tape. There's one other great match against Santo uh, in the in the early '90s, which is a like a more of a technical title match worked very differently that's really good and there's some stuff in AAA but he's a guy who his career kind of got cut really short he, yeah he got injured young right I mean maybe not young I mean young for a luchador right well, young for luchador right that's yeah. a different scale I mean I'm gonna go see Negro hopefully if everything works out I'm gonna go see Negro Casas on Sunday he now and he 62 maybe oh my god wow <laughs> something like that I don't know it's pretty that's goddamn incredible. old I, uh, you know but not, not luchador old right he's right. not like that's an answerable question. Negro Casas is 61. That's yeah. And still, still going. So yeah, but he got, he got injured young for, for Lucha and had to retire. So yeah, I mean, this definitely, I mean, well, that's the thing with getting into Lucha is there's always so many like guys that you're gonna be like, who shit, who the fuck is this guy? What is he doing? What the, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, it's a, a lot of content to digest. Sure. And then you have guys obviously have incredibly long careers, right? This match is in 1986 and Santo is still wrestling um, now and still, you know, 
certainly maybe not at the height of his powers, but is a very good wrestler and very entertaining. He's a guy I saw live. Weirdly, here in uh, Denver, which is where I live now, there is a lot of lucha, like a ton of lucha. Really? Yeah, there, there, I, there are four separate promotions that at least pre-COVID were running semi-regular lucha shows with fly-ins in Denver. Sometimes opposite each other, which I felt was the craziest thing. You know, like, why are you, why are you making me choose which one of these lucha shows to go to? One of you guys run a different day. That uh, is unbelievable. The, the, I, I mean, a, a Denver's a, a large city, but to support four competing lucha promotions, yeah, four competing above anything else. That's yeah. wild. Um, and so, yeah, so you got, so we, it's cool. I mean, since I moved here, I've gotten to see, you know, Santo and Negro Casas and Blue Panther and, you know, Psycho Clown and Demas and all, you know, all these, you know, all these just really cool uh, luchadors. Uh, Negro Navarro. I mean, just all, the, you know, all the guys you'd want to see. Um, incredible. Uh, here in, in just, you know, in random strip mall quinceanera spots uh, you know in various parts of denver so are they working local guys or uh, where's the where's the rest of the talent from that i'm super yeah, there's like a bunch of local guys and they don't they usually the local guys are not on more than like if you're working hugos you don't usually work iwc <laughs> so it's like they all have local different local guys that's incredible i i, I mean and that's I love this business for so many different reasons, but I love that part of this business. Just these tiny little pockets of like, this is what I'm doing. I am in a lucha fed in Denver, Colorado, you know, scrapping my way up, getting to, you know, work with these guys that the promoter brings in. What a life. Yeah. And usually the way it like, it sort of depends. Sometimes it'll be like a main eventer versus a main eventer, or sometimes it'll be like a main, you know, like a fly in tagged with a local guy working a right. fly in tag with a local guy. The promotion I'm seeing Negro, it's weird. This promotion is running almost like within three weeks of each other. I went to my first wrestling show, um, uh, live wrestling in a long time uh, post, I guess we're not, certainly not post-COVID. My right. daughter currently has COVID, so we're really not post-COVID. But, but you know, like, in, you know, after getting vaccinated and everything like that, went to, like, a, a live, my first live show from this the same promotion that's running here causes like, like three, uh, like a couple of weeks ago. And for some reason, they're coming right back with uh, Negro Casas' Rocky Romero in a singles match, which should be, you know, interesting. I don't know what... 61-year-old Negro Casas will do in his showcase singles match in 2021. Uh, but hopefully I'll get to find out, assuming everybody tells negative. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. Um, but yeah, they so they're the we're, they're a little more indie brain. So they brought it like the main event yeah. of the show I went to was uh, was the uh, the Parks L.A. Parks kids against yeah. um, Anthony Henry and Alex Zane, who are both. I don't know if you know either of those. I know. I, you know, I'd watch that. That sounds fun. Yeah, it was good. It was pretty good. Uh, for the most part, I mean, there was a couple moments where Anthony Henry felt like he needed to get his stuff in. It's kind of mm. like, like, I, like I didn't need to see a, a, a forearm exchange, uh, indie <laughs> forearm exchange between L.A. Park Jr. and Anthony Henry, like at New Japan show, in, yeah. in like a strip ball loose. That was stupid. But the rest was good. I say it's surprisingly good kind of like Dougie Gilbert style shit talking local heel uh, for a guy who I kind of mainly knew as a semi as an ex backyarder who had a lot of high spots. <laughs> so, so Sometimes that's enough. Bad for away from small venue lucha to big venue. This is a big uh, a big match. So yeah, I mean it's so so yes, relatively short career considering that most luchadors wrestle into their mid sixties. Yeah, or a lot of them do, right? If you don't die young or you don't get crippled, you don't usually you don't usually see a guy a lot of luchadors who just oh yeah, he just retired and is you know forty two. I would rather do something else than this incredibly fairly well-paying and you know prestigious position at the heart of my country's culture you know right i think super astro seems to be like the one of the guys i'm trying to think of people i know who seemingly just retired semi-young like in their mid-40s and just did other things he opened a sub shop i don't think he usually i don't usually see super i don't think super astros wrestled much in the last couple of years but outside of that you know you got guys like negro navarro and black terry and Casas and Panther and Santo or, you know, just still rolling along into their 60s. Satanico's still still wrestling, you know, weekly probably. Still pretty good. <laughs> just putting I mean, them out there. I mean, Black Terry's Black. in my current match of the year. 
guy's 69 years old. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, Black Terry, Ricky, Black Terry versus Ricky Marvin from uh, from uh, Lucha Memes or something like that. It's on. A, I don't know what? if you have. I don't know if you have IWTV. You should be reading Segunda Caeta more. Yeah, you should have the IWTV, but it gets on IWTV. It's really fucking great. It's like a really bloody brawl. It def- it's definitely going to make uh, Way of the Blade 2 if I do a Way of the Blade 2. <laughs> 100%. So he's still, doing, yeah. he's still doing his thing. He's still doing his, like, I'm going to throw really cool punches and be Clint Eastwood and bleed a bunch. And Black Terry's almost 70. That's insane. Yeah, 69. I love a 70-year-old man out there bleeding out the head. You know, fake fighting. Getting spin kicked in the chest really hard. <laughs> like, like a lot of times you'll see like really old guys will wrestle like when Baba used to wrestle pretty old. Yeah. Like, you, Kawada wasn't kicking Baba as hard as he could kick him, certainly. But but uh, Ricky Marvin just spun, cuck, spun kicked him right in the heart. I'm like, that's a guy who probably has a, not a great heart. Right, no. <laughs> you know, that's His impacts are meaningful. Yeah. Uh, okay, I will definitely, because I, I, love, I love an old man scrap. That's there's something and that's something that wrestling is so good at. There's just this the brilliant tradition of just the crusty, unkillable old man. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the other I think neither right now. Number two on our list is, is that Dustin Danielson match, which is similar, <laughs> uh-huh. similar yeah. old man, uh, old man, youngish, youngish. I think both Ricky Marvin and, and Brian Danielson are probably in there. 40s, I think, but so it's not like they're absolutely wrestling 20 year olds, but that same sort of uh, vibe of old guy trying to keep there's still, up. There's enough gap there. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a little about Spado. He, I guess he got, he was almost crippled in the ring, I think is what happened sort of right when he was in kind of this big run working as the first Pentagon. Yeah. So he initially comes in as uh, the El Hio de Saez. As uh, Santo Negro, who is the evil doppelganger of El Hijo de Santo in AAA to sort of renew that feud. And apparently, uh, I guess Santo's family put the kibosh on that gimmick. Uh, and so we're not going to have an evil Santo. So they kind of moved him to an evil pentagon. Uh, That's super. Uh, they moved it to, to, evil, to, to evil octagon. Evil octagon, right. An evil octagon. Because I mean, I have never understood. The origin of octagon, like what is the what is the octagon gimmick? Why is it octagon? Oh, the name was inspired by the movie The Octagon, starring Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah it's a martial arts thing, right? His gimmick is that he's like a he is like a ninja. It's just so incredible. It's so like the word octagon has no, you know, at, or at least in 1988 when the gimmick was big, like you know, post. You know, UFC, it certainly has resonance. But in 1988, like, what did octagon mean? It was such a bizarre leap. And I guess I would assume the octagon in the UFC was also inspired by that Chuck Norris film that I've never seen. Is that a good Chuck Norris film? I don't know. I There's a lot of Chuck Norris films. I don't think a lot of them are good. Yeah. I mean, I don't have to... Have Eric's my buddy Eric's idea's got a movie podcast. Maybe I'll have to have tell him he's got to do the octagon on his movie podcast to cover whether that's in fact a Chuck Norris movie worthy of the name of a incredibly overpushed but pretty underwhelming uh, luchador. Another guy I saw live in Denver, Octagon. Wasn't as excited to see him. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> he wasn't good when he was twenty five, he's not really good when he's four fifty eight. So there we go. God. Well, that's the thing is the guys who last, you know, they're not necessarily the best guys who last. They just hang in there. Yeah, I mean, the Blue Demon's definitely, Junior is definitely the weirdest. For he's a guy who really wasn't good until he was in his 50s, but is now, like, really great. Is he, I, that's definitely somebody I have not kept track on because, yeah, I, I have been nonplussed by a lot of Blue Demon Junior, but he's a, he's a good, crusty old man now. Well, the Dr. Wagner Jr. mask match, which I wrote about in, in The Way of the Blade, is incredible. Like, legitimately incredible. Um, like, one of the better matches of the 21st century. And he's had some other things that were good, too, but nothing like that. But that you're in one of the better matches of the 21st yep. century. That's pretty good. Take what you can get. Yeah, the last thing I heard about Blue Demon Jr. is that he was kicked off of the Disney Channel show he was supposed to be on. Was he big-timing, like, uh, whatever Disney Channel uh, starlet that he was uh, he was uh, teamed up with? 
It's hard to say. Like the gimmick was like the the child act, the one of the endless stream of Disney child actresses was like his playing his niece, and they teamed up. And then the next thing I heard is like Blue Demon's out, and we just are making up our own luchador instead. So you got to You he probably fucked something up kind of intensely there. Sure, you would imagine, right? I mean. If they didn't just say, if, if the conflict was between him and the girl and whatever it was, they didn't just get another girl off the, off the right. assembly line, right? Yeah. There's, oh. there's problems happening. If they, I just imagine they've got like 30 or 40 or 50 of them just waiting, right, for their spot. Uh, if anybody, anything happens, right, you just, they just shuffle in a new one. I imagine yeah. that's how they work, right? I don't think they don't think they don't do additions. They just own like sixty kids, uh, like they purchase them from their parents, and they're just waiting. Right, the contracts are in. Yeah, it's, it's you know they're it, they can deploy them in whatever situation is most appropriate. You know, if if you look, we're, I know you're waiting for your show, and while you're waiting for your show, you're going to be goofy on a Disney cruise. <laughs> here's, here's the outfit you know we gotta at least earn a little bit right that. exactly you know work, yeah. work a dipping dot station at a, at a animal kingdom while we're waiting <laughs> around for to see if uh see if this gets picked if the script gets picked up um from i once i i, I was probably unethical but i uh once i i one of the jobs i have is i work for a law school uh, i do admit uh, i work in the admissions office so i read a lot of files i remember reading um of the one of the law school applicants, this is a long time ago, was a girl who at one point had been like, you know, the lead of one of those shows that I'd never even heard of. And, it, you know, her basic personal statement was about how she had achieved this great fame at 14 and unsurprisingly fell to the demons of childhood stardom after that and, uh, and, um, you know, got into cocaine and things like that. But that was cleaned herself up and, you know, went to, VCU or whatever, and got a got a political science degree, and now wants to go to law school. I don't know, you know, I don't remember if we let her. I probably probably let her in. I don't know if she came. But I remember looking up her Twitter out of curiosity, and all it was was unanswered ats to other Disney Channel stars. It was the saddest thing I've ever seen. It was a bummer. Like you know, at Raven Simone, how's it going, fellow Disney Channel? Whatever. There's no response. <laughs> it definitely seems like you spin out of that sort of grouping and then it's it's just gone for you and some people can survive that and some people can't yeah i mean i i I don't i don't uh uh particularly regret that my childhood acting career didn't go farther than one kaiser permanente print ad and a commercial for a failed hbo uh competitor called star tv which is different from stars that was the extent of my uh kid fame and i'm pretty happy Pretty happy to my, go further than that. <laughs> yeah, my kids have done some modeling and some acting, and for them, it's like, do you want to do this? Okay, that's fine. You can do it, but we are not. You know, we are. There is no expectations here. If it's a, this is a hobby. You'll get paid sometimes. That's awesome. But please do not invest any more of your personality into this than absolutely necessary. Kayla, you got a blue check, man. You should. You don't. You don't have contacts. You can get them uh, set up in Hollywood. Uh, I would not want to. They're fine. Like I, they are going to scrape for what they get, just like I scrape for what I got. Exactly. Good approach. Uh, my kids are probably too young to scrape, but once they go, it starts going. They're going to start scraping. I agree with you. Um, so what is what is your sort of background with Santa? Like when did so, you? Uh, it's interesting because I got into lucha pretty in the late nineties. You know, it's mid to late 90s, I think, once I after I moved to New York is when I started getting into wrestling in general. And so I was not that deep into I had watched the, you know, because I'm a horror fan. I'm a weird movies fan. So I'd watched, you know, I came into Lucha through the movies, essentially, before I came in through the wrestling itself. Oh, so that's interesting. So you're, you've got like El Santo versus the zombies is right. your first like El Santo or El Hino Santo experience. And that's what I think something that's super fascinating is like the the sort of cultural positioning of luchadors is like, oh, yes, they are also movie action heroes who will fight fantastic monsters in these, you know, in this other context. I think it's super interesting. So uh, 
for me, I didn't really get into Hijo del Santo that much because when I was getting into Lucha, the stuff I was getting into was like the sort of grimy mid 90s Tijuana Lucha stuff, basically. So like Halloween and Damien. Yeah, that kind psychosis of Psychosis and those and guys. That was, that was the vibe. You know, it was so because these guys, those guys were nuts. They were total maniacs. You know, the, the matches were messy and, you know, wild and, you know, very. So, yeah, I, I haven't delved. I've watched a couple Hilo Dos Santo matches. This is one of the just and one of the reasons I was into this match because it really, uh, I think, is such a great introduction to what he's good at. Like it really, even though it's it's, it's such a great showcase for Espanto, it's really great at showing, you know, a great fiery comeback and a great sort of gritting through this like humiliation of getting torn open and bleeding and like put it, putting it back on your nemesis, you know, even worse. I think it's, this is a great sell for, for the wrestler. I think if you wanted to get somebody into him, this is a great match to start with. Yeah. it's pretty amazing for a guy who's been around. I mean, I don't think his, his performance would be very similar if, you were, if this if you ran uh, in a mask match, you might see, you know, t- twenty five years later, twenty eight years later, right? I think there wouldn't be a giant difference in how well he would perform. He, I mean, in some ways, you, if you squint and watch twenty twenty one Santo, he looks very similar to the way he looked back then, right? He doesn't obviously having a mask means you don't necessarily see that we're talking about a really old man. He never had the most like developed body right so it's not like his body as an old man is clearly has way less musculature than his body did as a 25 year old so even now if you kind of watch a Santo match and you tell the person that it was from 2021 and instead you told them it was from 1998 you'd kind of buy it but even but like as far as the high-end performance stuff I mean he was doing this kind of thing you know well into the 2010s you know with like bloody mass matches which is not yeah and it's it's great because there's not I mean there's some big some there's some good dives and stuff in this but a lot of it is just about strength of communication like the way he his body he holds his body the way he sells what's happening to him the way he like I don't know there's so much really solid nonverbal communication and and that I think is why so many of these luchadors can go for so long is because it's like the the skill of communicating with your body, your emotions and your state and your feeling is so strong with them that like, that's never going to go away. Yeah, totally. And just like the, like the, just the very end of the match where he kind of just, you know, Santo misses, uh, Spanto misses that dive and just Santo just dives on him and puts on one of the nastiest copieries you've ever seen. I mean, really just, you know, adjust like either his back is going to break or it's going to be really really feel really good that happened you know it's like the ultimate chiropractic job on that back um and just the sort of like him just pulling back and with his hair kind of sticking out of his mask Mm -hmm. and blood all over it and kind of conveying that he this is his moment he's going to do everything he possibly can to put this guy down because maybe he's not going to have another chance right like yeah Espanto had been so dominant in the match that it was like, it did feel a little bit like, okay, I got him now and either I get him now or maybe I don't get him. Yeah, this match is, it's felt is what's so great about this match. It's not cerebral, it's not calculated. It is like pure emotion behind the things that are happening. Like it's so feelings-based and that's really satisfying. It's really something that wrestling is really good at is tapping these like deep, you know, primal human emotions and like exhibiting them in this way. And I think that, you know, that's something that's really satisfying about this. And I think that's something that's, there's so many great emotional moments. Like when the first mask rip happens, when Sponto like pulls into the eye hole and like rips the mask up, there is so much in the way Hijo Dos Santo like reacts to it. There's so much like tension and energy like starts vibrating in him. And it's, it's it's really masterful nonverbal communication. Yeah, he really is incredible. I mean, for a guy you can't, you know, so much of wrestling is emoting in your face. You can't really emote in your face if you're wearing a mask. Um, then you have to do it another way. And he's really amazing at 
at, you know, being a guy who's going to do all of his selling, really convey that kind of emotion without ever really seeing his face, all just in the body and the way he moved his head and that kind of thing. And really impressive, right? When you think of like a lot of your great reactors in wrestling, they, you, I imagine guys who do a lot of real f- like facial reaction, uh, you know, but Santos amazing at not being able to do that. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, we read the face first. That's just it's human nature. So to be able to communicate as much and as many different emotions and sensations and feelings in this match, I think that's something that's just really good at is there's so many different like peaks and valleys to it. There's like the the sort of like after the master that's like intense, like furious comeback. And then there's like the cut, like just looking at his body, the way he holds himself, the way he uses the ropes, the outside of the ring, there's so much storytelling going on there on such a micro level that, you know, the vast majority of the people who are involved in the sport of Kings here aren't doing, you know, there's so much that people could learn from just watching the, just the investment in each moment, I think is so rich yeah let's talk a little about the blood because you know that's what the yeah that's what this is uh what in that the book and the podcast is that's it's uh, a thematic thing this match has a lot of blood in it um a sponto especially by the end and you know the video quality is not amazing uh on this you know i believe the story behind this matt why this match is available is that a sponto used to just sell this match <laughs> like it like at flea markets and shit um, this and the other Santo match, he would have, he had a tape of it and he would sell the tape and eventually the tape got in the hands of American folks who, you know, were able to distribute it and now it's on YouTube, but that's kind of the story. And so the video quality isn't great, but you can especially see during the unmasking before he unmasks, they're like trying to, you know, tamp down this like yes. pulsating open wound on his forehead. It is really, gr- it is really grisly. Uh, it really does look like, you know, they've got to, we got to stop this before, you know, he, we have to take him to the hospital. Um, and then when, you know, takes the mask off, you can just see that his entire face and hair is like just matted down with blood. And then Santo with the, you know, he bleeds too. And, you know, the silver mask is so great at, at you know, being a conduit for blood yeah. right it really you know like it is like it's like the equivalent of flair's platinum blonde hair is just like a visual uh you know template for blood yeah it's it's perfect and i mean there's something blood in a mask when a mask gets ripped like that is it gives you the sensation of a wound so much more than all that. like it really looks because we associate this persona, this personality, this is part of their body. And so when it's torn off their face and there's blood involved, like it is absolutely our mind goes immediately like, oh, this person's flesh is ripped, is torn. Yeah, totally. And, and it happens. Both these guys really yes. open it up. And that's kind of a classic thing, obviously, in mask matches is to have it be have a lot of blood in it. Um, and uh this one's got a, this one's got a lot. And it, it's played really well because it's, it's the, the narrative arc of the match, the escalation is so strong. Like it's so earned when you get it, like Espanto rips Santo open his bleeding. And then when Espanto gets busted open, you're like, holy shit, like this is really happening. Like things are going to like, both of these guys have taken their limiters off. You know, they're full dragon ball. Like we're going to just, go to any length, you know, like this is the time for, you know, half measures is over. It's very full commitment. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, there is a, I mean, mass matches like, I mean, Lucha Libre is great thing about Lucha Libre is, you know, you're going to see a a formula executed perfectly. Right. And you can often tell the beats of where a match is going to go, but the, you know, the, Greatness is how do they adjust to that formula, right? It's like you know, uh, like a like a mystery novel or something like that, where you always know how where it's going, but how is how is how are they conveying it, right? Uh, what are the parts in between that that are going to really deliver? And this obviously has got a ton of really great little parts. Oh, so one of the things I wanted to mention, we mentioned the bad video quality of this. There actually is a much better video quality version of this match on YouTube now actually uploaded by El Hidasanto. Whoa! 
Yeah, so there is like I actually I, I kind of we were talking about it. And I was looking from at the version that first comes up, which I think Alfredo Spars is an old Lucha tape dealer. But I think we probably both bought some DVDs or tapes from him back in the day. Uh, had on YouTube, but actually Santo, not that long ago, like a, maybe a month or or so ago, put up I guess his version of it, and it's pretty good. Like it oh. is not is not grainy you know there's the part after the dive to the floor on the version that has been out there that it cut the video cuts out yeah. it doesn't cut out in this version um so folks want to find this match i i will tell there's a a um a viewer guide uh on the hybrid shoot blog or Substack or something uh where it has links to all this i think it probably had links to the old one i will make sure that it's got links to the new version uh, so folks can check it out. But if you do uh, other ways, if you search on YouTube for El Hito Santo Responder Jr. and look for the one uploaded by El Hito Santo, it is a much, much cleaner version. It looks great. I mean, it's obviously, That's wild. It's obviously yeah, I, old video, so it's not like, you know, HD 4K, but it doesn't skip out or anything, and you can kind of really see the what's going on way better. Yeah, and I will, dev- I will take another half an hour to watch this in better quality. Like, the fact that this match is so compelling in this, like, shitty-ass video. Yeah, we're old school you- guys, though, okay? We, we, you know, yeah. you, you probably bought a tape, bought tapes from me at some point. I'm sure those were video quality. Wasn't- yeah, 100%. No, it's, it's hilarious to me to think of the lengths that we used to go to. Like, you know, how many people did you know that had the dual deck VCR with one deck next to the other that you just used for dubbing? Like dozens like it was just the way we did things yeah i didn't even have a yeah it wasn't even like i didn't have like a dual deck i had like two vcrs (laughs) and i had to buy i mean when i was deep into the into the you know uh, like tape dealer i would have to buy a new vcr every couple months yeah because you just burn that shit out you know you're constantly making copies of whatever of this tape or this other tape to trade it or sell it you know you just cook your vcr eventually uh and then it's slowly degrading or just eat, start eating shit, and you'd be like, "Okay, time to get a new one." Go to Costco and you know, and and stock up on you know twenty four packs or thirty six packs of of uh, uh, VHS tapes, and you know the whole deal. And now it's just like, oh, what's you know, what's everything's available? You know, everything that exists is available on a Google Drive or a, or YouTube or something. Um, you know, it's pretty cool. I mean, I you know, like I said, I think I said this before. Is like, I wish wrestling was better. With the amount of <laughs> the amount of availability we have to it now, right? You know, it's cool that IWTV's live streaming all these indie shows, but you know, it would have been cooler if they were live streaming USWA shows in 1992 or something like that. Yeah, there's there's a, certainly a bounty of content, but yeah, a lot of it is not engaging. Yeah, it's so you know, like a New Japan World. You get every all the New Japan shows, but imagine, imagine if you had if New Japan World was the thing that existed, you get Hashimoto New Japan matches instead of Okada New Japan matches. Yeah, it was just, and I think that the scarcity in a lot of ways was such a driver back then, though, because when something made it through, you know, to your group or to your people, there was always like I remember when the Michinoku Pro stuff came over for the first time, and everybody's like, "What the fuck." Yeah. Like that was so like and that stuff like people were we were desperate to get our hands on that stuff because it was so good and so like lively and exciting. And like just that feeling is something that I'm not sure if this current generation is going to have in that same way. Like that anticipation, like people were talking about it like, oh, my God, you have to see these crazy guys, you know, with this in this Japanese promotion, like these are the stuff they're doing like and then having to wait. Like having like some guy's description on a message board and then having to wait like three weeks to get your tape. Yeah, totally. Or, or, you know, I mean, that's the way it is with everything, right? That's the way, you know, now all music is available immediately, right? You don't have to, you don't have to get, uh, somebody doesn't have to tell you about a, 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 you know, a tape and then you have to get the tape and, you know, all that stuff that I don't have to buy uh, NWA uh, uh, tapes from the, swap meet which is where i got them when i was growing <laughs> up you know this is like it's just available any song you want to listen to you can just listen to immediately right and you know any movie you want to see you can probably find streaming somewhere i mean it's just you don't have scarcity is no longer a thing it's more about you know it's just kind of the thing that i think that i try to do with the writing that i do you know in Suguda Kaida in this book is a little bit you know okay you can watch it all now but here are some things that you 
Right. But should you? But should you? So maybe here's some descriptions of some things which are which are worth watching. Yeah, and I think that that kind of curation is super valuable because, yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible to know about everything. Like I – in so much of my writing, I do so much like sort of generalist writing where I have to dive into a subject and like immerse myself super deeply to create something that is palatable and understandable to the rest of the world. And then I have to completely wipe it out of my head and do it again for something else. So – yeah, I don't, of, I don't. I never have really done generalist stuff. Well, I mean, just writing for general audience stuff. So I think it's what's 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 great is that there are so many people who are able to sort of capture this niche of expertise and relatability and be able to present it. In I don't know. I'm fucking. I lost it. Bill, it's gone. It left. Whatever that thought was, it's out. It's done. Fine, I got. I kind of got what you're saying. I mean, you know, that's the thing. I think the, you know, while another advantage of the current world is you can find an audience for, you know, that'll be into some weird thing. I mean, that was what the Death Valley Driver was in a lot of ways when we started. It was we're not gonna, we're gonna talk about weird shit, and you can get into it or not, and that's what we're gonna do. And you know, if you don't understand what we're talking about, it's gonna be all weird jokes that five people are gonna get, and not. I don't think we were ever ever really trying to get any bigger than we were. You know, we don't like we. You know, Scott Keith was the guy that got book deals, right? I I, I got a book deal twenty god years later, right? And, you know, but it, but that was the thing is like oh, we're just gonna do this thing. We're gonna we think now there's enough people that can will, can be interested in this and we'll find it uh, on a on a small level, and we don't really ever care if we get bigger. Yeah, and for me at least, one of the sort of guiding lights of my career, my life so far, is that enthusiasm always works. Like if you love it and you feel it, it's always going to communicate. It's always going to come through. It's like no matter what it is. Yeah, totally. Like I have very little interest in writing about things I don't like anymore. I mean, there was a point where I would, you know, like watch something and be enthusiastic, like shit all over it in a funny way. And now it's just like, I'm not going to, you know, I got, I got other things going on. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm not going to watch raw just to shit on raw. I'll just, I'm sure it's terrible and I'll never know, <laughs> you know? Like, like you know, in the even really popular stuff, it's like I I know I don't really like current New Japan, so I'm not going to bother giving it a sixth chance, uh, just so I can make jokes about how much I don't like it. I don't, you know, it's just little interested in that anymore. I think one of the more well known things I wrote back in the day was I did like a big took a big crap all over the first Russo Bischoff Nitro, which was something that people were really excited about when it happened. And I remember watching though, this is horrible and i wrote this big thing about how horrible it was and now i just wouldn't have i don't have the energy to really be that kind of you know like takedown artist anymore i just don't care about that kind of stuff life's too short and there's too much bad stuff out there anyway yeah it's like, like people who do like you know they'll do like i'm gonna do podcasts about all these bad movies and make fun of them so i don't know what, what what's a good movie i wouldn't mind learning about a good movie <laughs> you know i imagine that movie is terrible it sounds terrible <laughs> Well, I mean, and honestly, there's better places for that. Like, that's what Twitter is for. Twitter is for talking shit because you can get it out. of It's you can. Right. And then you're done and you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah, that's true. I, uh, I have I uh, you're you're as if you become sort of uh, you're how many Twitter followers do you have? Uh, I don't know. Let me look. Yes, you do. <laughs> no, I actually don't. Uh, what is this? Hold on. It is 16,400. Okay. So you're like a Twitter guy, like who's sort of well-known on Twitter, right? It's just for me, like my whole deal is I will never think about anything I post to Twitter. It is just a vent. It is whatever idiotic joke I come up with at three o'clock in the morning or whatever dumb fucking thing I see. I People who take Twitter seriously, I think should probably be put somewhere for their own protection. It's just a free space it is a garbage hole i can throw whatever garbage i want to it and sometimes for some reason the garbage becomes inexplicably popular like very strange things uh brooklyn decker follows me on twitter (laughs) it's like why are you doing this there is no reason for this in any way she follows like 70 people and one of them is me I was like, why is this? This makes no sense. I am not going to stop tweeting about, you know, bowel movements because of this. It's just, 
again, it's what I was saying about enthusiasm. If you believe it and you feel it and you love it, I fully believe in the garbage I throw into this hole. And if other people love the garbage too, that's great. That's your weirdest Twitter. I, I'm trying, I, gotta, I guess I don't know who my strangest Twitter follows. I don't even, how do I even find this? I mean, complete, I'm completely terrible at Twitter. Like I'm not good at it at all. I really only started tweeting to try to, any with any regularity as a way to like try to promote the book. Uh, cause I felt like, you know, I had a obligation to try, I've been trying to do as much like publicity It's kind of the reason I did this podcast, kind of as much publicity as I can for the book, uh, to get like, uh, to get, you know, some, you know, so I don't lose John money, which is my main goal, right? Like to get, so I don't, uh, so he doesn't go broke. I don't know, is Bix my most, uh, sure think how many blue check followers I have. Bix follows me, he's blue check. I don't know, does that count? Look at that. There we go. That's oh, a yeah, Dustin Rhodes follows me. Herself. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Dustin Rhodes and Bex, I think, were my, are, my, nice. are the people I know who, are, who have blue checks who follow me. That's actually a, a fine pair of guys. I'm just looking through this. Jimmy Rave. It's like, it's like a, that's for three guys? Those are three pretty good guys. Yeah. I don't actually have a lot of wrestling crossover Twitter following me. I think Chris Hero still follows me, and that's it. Yeah, well, you know, that's... Um, Right, because you're not, you know, like, what wrestling writing have you done? I mean, I... So, I mean, because I know the, I, you know, I know you back in the day because you were like a DVD VR guy and we, you know, hung out a handful of times and then you kind of got well-known and I wasn't really sure why. Uh, <laughs> I was like, hey, I fucking okay, so I know that guy. Uh, and then, so, like, but you, you say you've done some wrestling work. What wrestling work have you done? Yeah, so back in the day, back in the late 90s, I was working for a company called UGO, which was uh, uh, underground online. It was a sort of New York media affiliate company. And they hooked up with Bob Ryder at Figure Four Online. So I was aggregating and working with them to grow their audience and like as a result of that going to like the ecw shows at the hammerstein ballroom that like billy corgan showed up at and shit like that and so like meeting people and hanging out with wrestlers there and doing interviews and stuff for that so that was really ridiculous it was really stupid because this company was like pouring money into something but wrestling at this the time the days where just internet people would just set money on fire yeah and the weird thing is back in the late 90s you if you wanted to build traffic on a website wrestling was a really good way to do it it was a really strong traffic driver because it had an engaged audience that was growing and young and tech literate so it was you know a a pretty smart proposition for this company to put resources in it so i was working that if you had if you like say owned one of the more popular and influential professional wrestling websites uh, in the '90s, there was a way to make money from it instead of just spending wasting time. So you think there was well, a some I mean, point where I could have monetized fucking like, owning the Death Valley Driver instead of just never making a single penny from it? If you wanted to do like regular news updates, you know, and hot scoops, rumors, and whatever, then yes, absolutely. And it was, it was no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was not satisfying or pleasurable at all, but it was really fascinating to. See, and I think once you're when you're in the machine like that, you can really see what drives traffic and what people want around for culture. Because like we had a whole music section on the site that nobody ever visited. It got like no traffic compared to professional wrestling, but it was important to for the culture of the company to show that we were plugged into the hot music trends of the day. So we hired somebody on staff to run it, even though. You know, it didn't pay for anything. So it's it's I think the Internet has always been like that. There's always the stuff that subsidizes the stuff you want to be known for. So for a lot of my career, that's the stuff I've been writing is the stuff that subsidizes the fancy stuff. Right. You're like, so you said that. So you were you were writing like, hey, guys, did you hear? I hear, uh, what, So what year was this? Ninety nine. This would be like, yeah, ninety eight, ninety nine, early 2000. No, wait, ninety nine, two thousand, I think. So this would have been. I'm trying to think of what would be your scoops rumors in 2000. Oh, so I didn't. I didn't do any of that. I just aggregated the uh, stuff that they were putting together and like distributed it. I didn't do it. So you weren't even the guy who who was writing. Uh, you know, Paul Heyman to buy WCW. Right. No, I would. I would go to shows and stuff and work on building audience and development. But yeah, I did not. I did not do any direct 
work like that. But I mean, it was it was fun and stupid and it paid the bills. It was a nice salary at the time for a young man in New York City with no responsibilities. And that, so then you went on and you did that. And then where else are some other places that you worked uh, between then and where what you do now? Yeah, so I that company collapsed horribly, fell apart, and then life in New York City basically collapsed horribly and fell apart soon after that. So I was homeless for about a year. Uh, I traveled around the country by Greyhound bus, kind of bumming around and meeting people and doing things. Uh, came back to New York and started freelance writing for a couple different companies. And so since then, I've been working. I've worked for New York Magazine, for Newsweek, Business Insider, New York Observer, a bunch of different places. Just, you know, I'm lucky enough that I'm at a point in my life where I can decide what's interesting to me and there's enough people out there that will pay me to write about it. So that's, yeah, for the last 15 years or so, I've just been writing for a living. Okay, that's cool. I mean, I, you know, it's a, that's, I guess that's the dream in a lot of ways. Where are you now? You're not in New York anymore. No, you we, you're in Pacific, my wife and I moved to San Juan Island. It's about halfway between Seattle and Vancouver, Canada. You can only get here by boat or small plane. About 6,000 people live here year round. So it's like a moderate size island. But yeah, we had our son Henry in New York and raising a kid in New York was just an utterly disgusting concept. We were both working 10 or 11 hour days and commuting another hour. And we're like, why are in, why are we doing this? We are getting nothing from this anymore. So yeah, we moved cross country and it's been great. It's really a spectacular place to raise kids. It's uh, clean and beautiful and everybody knows each other. It's a small town. So yeah, I'm really lucky to be where I am and doing what I'm doing. Yeah. That's, and that's cool that that's something you can do in, in, in 2021 is, be a working writer and not have to and live in the middle of an island uh, like uh, like you're from uh, some middle school storybook or something like that. <laughs> you have to yeah, take, a, take a prop it's, plane to. So do you? Is there like you, they fly? Is, is shit really expensive there? Like I would imagine if you. No, well, there's there's a, a ferry that takes vehicles, so you can drive onto the ferry and you take the ferry here. Okay, so, so like they're so, just so, groceries so they, and stuff expensive. Yeah. Uh, they're like slightly more expensive. They're not as expensive as groceries in New York City. Okay. And there's also – there's two grocery stores. There's a grocery store for tourists that's right by where the ferry lets off. And there's a grocery store for locals that's kind of tucked back in town a bit. So there's that. And the grocery store for locals is cheaper. Uh, you know, it's – there's adaptations to be made. Moving here – when I was in New York, we lived in Astoria, which is the most ethnically diverse zip code in the United States. So we could get any food we wanted at any time. So moving here was a big adjustment there because it's not really what happens here. You can get pretty good fish and chips, but everything else you're on your own. So there definitely were, there are some trade-offs to be made. Right. Not, you're not going to have great pad time, but you're also not going to be paying $2,800 a month for a less, a small one bedroom apartment. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing to see like actually because I was in Astoria where when we left, we had a great apartment. We were paying twelve hundred a month for a two bedroom on top of a laundromat, which if you're going to live in New York City, living above a laundromat is the absolute best downstairs neighbor to have because there's no bugs and everything is clean. But just going back to that neighborhood, even 10 years later, our old apartment now rents for thirty six hundred a month. Sure. I mean, twelve hundred a month, even when you left, is is still oh. really cheap. But yeah, thirty six sounds about right. I mean, we we moved out of D. We we were living in D.C. before we moved to Denver, and obviously D.C. is not New York expensive, but it's you know, in the mix. Uh, so we definitely were able to sell our like tiny one bedroom condo and buy a giant house for less money in color in you know Denver suburbs, which are also not inexpensive. Um, particularly, like, and I imagine living on an island would be. Although I don't know, I mean, it, it, there has there has to be a desirable place to live in some ways, right? Yeah, I mean, you kind of have. It's kind of like living in Alaska in some ways. You have to have a certain kind of mindset for it. Basically, you have to be able to either work from home. I mean, we're the county seat, also, so the courthouse is here. We have like a two screen movie theater, so it's it's enough like civilization. But you definitely have to have options. Uh, in terms of how you work to live here. So we know, you know, we have our friends are dentists or linemen. I know a lot of uh, music producers who actually live here and then travel to work. So it's an interesting place for sure. 
Yeah, that's crazy. Um, and uh, where would folks be able to see your stuff if they wanted to see your stuff? So first just they need Twitter. to follow your uh, inexplicably popular Twitter. It's really just Twitter. Anything worth seeing goes there. I um, mean, where what are you working on right now? Like, what's the newest thing you've written? What are the you've got? If you, are you selling some art or cartoons? Uh, Plug here for the dozens of people who listen to the wave. Of- I'm working on something I can't talk about. One of my major creative outlets right now is t-shirts. I do insane, stupid t-shirt designs for print on demand t-shirts at T public, which is great. I can have the dumbest idea possible and turn it into a product in 45 minutes and then people can buy them and I don't have to do anything after that. That sounds pretty good. What's your, what's your uh, third most popular t-shirt? The third most popular T-shirt is uh, probably – oh, it's the one that says all cops, Marines, and Texans are cowards. <laughs> Excellent. So folks want to buy an all cops, Marines, and Texans are cowards T-shirt. Just wear it to a bar, military bar or something like that and start fistfights. Yeah, it's a lot of these shirts are designed to get you in trouble. A lot of them are also like weird pop culture ephemera that is gone. I'm actually I reproduced the jacket Morton Downey Jr. wore at WrestleMania for uh, the shirt where it's it's got the big mouth on the front and it says I have been immortalized. You know, I just I'll see something, you know, that is brilliant. And I was like, this needs to exist once more. And I will painstakingly replicate it. God, Morton Downey Jr. That's a guy I haven't thought about in a long time. He's a guy who kind of, well, he would have, he would have been, he would have been someone who fit perfectly into the current uh, 20. He would probably be a congressman. Oh, he would be happier than a pig in shit right now. He would live. Morton Downey Jr. It would have been his time. He might have ended up the secretary of education. There's (laughs) actually a there was a really great documentary on him that came out in 2012 called Evocateur that I recommend highly. It's really, really good. I mean, I assume his politics were right wing, but they, I, that's an assumption, right? I don't know. Maybe more than Jr. was. I mean, he was more of an outrageous character than a superly political one, right? I'm trying to remember. It was a long time since I thought of him. Was he a guy who necessarily would have been a Trump guy? It's hard. Because he was pro-life, so I think he was at least somewhat right-wing. But he was really – it's interesting. He was mostly a showbiz guy. His dad was a singer. And so he was a performer above anything else. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I, you know, that, 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 that'll get you pretty far these days. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, don't, I think Trump was, was, was primarily a, perf- a showbiz guy too, right? Yeah, 100%. That's, that was the whole gimmick. And that's why it was so – I mean not to get political, but that's why all the sort of devotion to him from these right-wing people is so funny to me because this is – it's an obvious performance. It's a show. Right. Yeah. I mean he, in some ways very – I think a, a guy who – you know, tying a little back to the theme, he's a guy who, with a pro wrestling background, right, as a, yeah. as a, was a boxing promoter, was like a guy who understands – being a carny in a lot of ways. Right. And understands how to pull an emotion from a crowd, you know, and make it build. And like, and I, you know, for all of his ridiculousness, like you look at those crowds and at the rallies that are there for him, he is playing them like fiddles and you can watch it from a distance. You're like, what the fuck is, what is this? What is he saying? But he knows his audience and he knows how to hook yeah, I mean, definitely. I think there's a, there's a lens from being a wrestler, from being wrestling guys, where you kind of like, I understand this. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of weird that it's gotten this far, and you know, it's continuing to go into the future. But uh, it's definitely something you kind of understand. I mean, you know, the Vince McMahon parallels are obviously enormous, right? I mean, there's those guys are the same person in a lot of ways, down to the weird, you know, creepy. Edible relationships with their daughters, and and down down to the down to the you know the the fuck up son who's going to do stupid things to try to get his dad's attention. I mean, it's yeah, all right it's there. Yeah, incredible parallel. My friend Abe Reisman is actually working on a Vince McMahon biography right now, and last I heard, he's up to like four hundred and thirteen pages. Oh my god! So this thing is like he is deep in it. 
his last book was on Stan Lee, so he's definitely uh, a man who you can trust to get to the core of a <laughs> conflicted American. But he is he is on a journey with this, and I am very excited for when it comes out because I have a good feeling. Right, I mean, I think they like they, I think aren't the isn't the Ringer or something doing like a a Vince McMahon like authorized uh, like documentary or something like that. Like that's not what you want. I'm yeah. not interested. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how that guy would, you know, uh, portray himself. But what you really want to see is somebody who's able to dig past that and get into the real worms that you assume are underneath. Right. And I, I mean, in a perfect world, you have both, obviously, because it's and that's I think what's magical about wrestling is showing the sort of the contrast there. And I think that, yeah, so. Vince McMahon as a Netflix documentary to be produced by Bill Simmons. Yeah, that's not going to be good. Uh, somebody will occasionally, you know, I don't, I don't know. I read the book of basketball. I got some time for that for Bill Simmons, but not, not the right person for this uh, for no. this endeavor. Well, it's, I mean, it's just it's. I mean, I I will not shy away from being just absolutely fascinated with Vince McMahon. One of the pitches I'm really saddest I didn't get placed. I was working to get something at Split Cider about his sense of humor and about comedy in sort of the way he presents. Because his sense of humor is so deranged and so weird. And yet he like – and it's so evident in the programming he puts out. Like it's so – it's, I think, an under-examined uh, part of his personality. Yeah, you definitely can tell where there's something like a Vince joke. It's like, oh, yeah, I get this is amusing him and nobody else. Right. And, <laughs> you know, whatever. It's, just, it's incredible to have the power that you can make like this incredible, this massive entertainment conglomerate, like, live, act out this, like, ridiculous shit. That yeah, you and, think they, is and, and they always have, like, a second-tier or third-tier comedy person on staff right they always hire comedy writers um you often see that on weird people's resumes i know that uh, patrice o'neill wrote for them at one point uh which i thought was really bizarre when i when i heard that but i think they always have a lot of like you know whatever stand-up comedy or comedy writers will stop in for three months before they realize that the place is too insane to actually work at yeah, I, I I love the stories of people who like go in and get chewed up by that machine. It's like, what the fuck was happening? Like, there's that woman who got hired and fired in like a week, I think, a while back. There's like the comedy thing is amazing. Like, there's this Colt Cabana interview where he's talking about his working with her WWE. It's like he's talking to Vince McMahon about comedy, and he was like, "What's?" He says, "I'm into alternative comedy," and Vince's like, "Oh, what's that?" And Cabana's like, "You know, stuff like the State Kids in the Hall, Pat Oswell. And Vince McMahon replies like, oh, like Jackie Gleason? <laughs> yeah, Jackie, like Jackie Gleason. That's not appropriate. I mean, Jackie Gleason's, you know, pretty damn funny. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But this is, you know, in the early 2000s, it's an incredible thing to bring up. I don't know. It's I, I can't wait for Abe's book. I think it's going to be like truly tremendous because of, of all the the great Americans right now, I think Vince McMahon is one that the world needs to know more about. Like you tell somebody a Vince McMahon story, like the burrito story or something, or the the, the crushed leaves in his cousin's vagina story. And like, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah, this guy's a multimillionaire who runs one of the most successful television programs in history. Just so you know. Yeah, I mean, wasn't the idea... What Didn't he pitch a story where he wanted to impregnate Stephanie? I am not sure about the veracity of that, but it's it's perfectly believable. It's perfectly believable. It's, it's just... It's literally like... So we live uh, on our property. We live next to my grandfather, who is 90. And he's a 90-year-old, and there's something about successful men of a certain age where they are just the most stubborn people alive. I love my grandpa's amazing. He's just incredible. He was a rocket designer for NASA, but he is so set and convinced in his worldview, like that you cannot dissuade him from something that he thinks is correct. And I think that Vince McMahon's at that same point where he's like, this is what we're doing. This is right. You know, and no, no argument you know, will sway me. And I think that that's an incredibly fascinating mindset to have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I think they're at, 
at a, they're at like an inflection point. The last podcast I did uh, last week, I talked to John uh, Paz, who's like a podcaster, about like we talked about Bret Hart, uh, Steve Austin, and how that was mm. a you know a moment where they had to feeling pressure and had to adjust. And it seems a little bit like they're at another moment. Like, that's certainly been a long time since they felt any pressure. I had to adjust. But it's like, I don't know if Vince McMahon at this age has it in him to do anything but the thing he's always done. Yeah, and it's super wild because you can see them doing things. Like, one thing that's super interesting that they did, like, last year, I think, for a couple months. And looping back to the topic of this subject, they had every match be two out of three falls for a while. Oh yeah, that was weird. Yeah, they, it was. It's so, and it was such a strange. It, it's so weird to me that like we're just going to change the rules of our fictional sports universe. So this is the way it is now, and so that's to me something that's like the same thing. Is like they're trying, they're reaching out blindly in the darkness to find a solution to their problems. You know where none may exist. Yeah, it just may not have it anymore. I mean, but you know, obviously they're at this point. You know. So I don't know if there's any way that the company could not make money. Right. You know, they're they're sort of always just, and so maybe they don't, maybe they just don't, you know, at some point they just don't care and they'll just do what they're doing and make money and let other people just do what they're doing and lose audiences and eventually still be able to get TV deals because even even a very unsuccessful WWE is still pretty good ratings and and, uh, just, I mean, uh, but it is, Kind of, it is kind of a yes. I cannot. The short answer is I also cannot re- wait to read your friend's book. <laughs> it's gonna be good. I'll let you know when it's done. Yeah, I'll have to have, we'll have to have him on Way of the Blade. Okay, Thor, my friend, this was great uh, catching up after all these years and chat with you. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, like I said, people can find you on Twitter uh, at Kthor Johnson. Yeah, absolutely. And congratulations on the book. It's really great. It's really satisfying. Oh man, I really appreciate that. And we'll talk soon. 